back about South listeners. We're glad to be back with you after our mid-season break and Hurricane Irma. We hope that you've weathered the storm and we're glad to be with you again this Friday. Today, we're talking to Maurice Hobson. He's an assistant professor of African American studies and a historian at Georgia State University. His book, The Legend of the Black Mecca, is forthcoming from UNC Press and you can pre-order it now. There'll be a link on our website. Maurice is also, however, a former Division I football player. So when we were imagining this year's football episode, we wanted to tackle some of the important questions surrounding the racial politics and the class politics of Southeastern football. And we couldn't think of a better person to talk to about this than Maurice. As you'll hear, he and I both love the sport. But we also see all of the problems with it. And we try to wrap our heads around what future there could be for such a problematic pastime. We don't come to many answers, but we do pose a lot of questions. I'm Gina Kaysen, and this is About South. excited to be here today talking football with Professor Maurice Hobson. And we are both football fans. Yes. And even though you grew up liking Auburn, you became an Alabama fan. And I might even be a more Nick Saban fan than I am an Alabama fan. You know, people say that and it annoys me. Well, I... I, I, Because people say that and I'm like, no, own it. You go for Alabama. Own it. (laughs) Well, I will say this. Um, It's difficult to support the university with with the current political climate and some of the things that go goes on, it's difficult to support oh, yeah. the university. My wife was the first black woman to finish a PhD in the College of Engineering from the University of Alabama. And the treatment that she endured while she was there, it makes it difficult to like the policies of the university. And even my time when I did my master's at Alabama, I there was a lot going on there. And so it's difficult for me to like the school, particularly such as yourself. I mean... You went to graduate school in California, very right. different kind of orientation to education, particularly, you know, research one public school, public Ivy kind of education. Right. Me doing a PhD at the University of Illinois to where they really put their money where their mouth was in terms of that. And it presents a different kind of university versus, you know, these large public universities in the American South where football is king. What growing up was your attachment to the sport? Did your parents encourage it or did you come to it yourself out of cultural pressure growing up in Alabama? How did you find well, football? So, so um, my, the first sport that I that I, I ever played was soccer. I played soccer. I, I started when I was in the first grade, and I was the only black kid that played soccer. But when I was in the third grade, there were two particular events that took place that really, or three that that really made me become um, a football fan. My oldest brother had gone to high school, and he was in the band. And because he was in the band, I, I, there's six kids in my family. And my oldest brother was kind of the one like, whatever he did, we did too. So he was in the band and my, my second to the oldest brother and myself, we would always go to the games and we just began to like really love Selma High football. And so that particular year, um, and I was in the third grade, 
um, we began to kind of notice uh, these players. My mom had this thing to where when she would pick my brother up from the band room, she would take my other, my I have a brother G, myself, and I have a younger brother named Vince. She would take us to the Selma High Fieldhouse, which was across the street, and she would have us take pictures with these high school players that we saw them as gods. Like we were just they were celebrities. Like, they were celebrities. I mean, you know, I could, Tank Williams played for, Williamson played punter for Alabama. Orlando Burks played at Alabama State. Curtis Harris played at Alabama A and M. Big Steve Simpson, Big Moses Shear, they called him Bogot. And these guys were legends in Selma. So that was that was a part of it. But the other part of it is my brother had gone on a Boy Scouts trip to the Auburn Alabama game and his Boy Scout troop I, this is when Bo Jackson was playing so we were watching it but we couldn't go to the game and when he comes back we were cheering for Bo Jackson but when he comes back he was like we are Auburn fans because they got Bo Jackson so that's what it was and what's particularly interesting about Bo is that year he won the Heisman and he wore number 34 well we all wanted our football number to be number 34 because my parents had gone to college with Walter Payton, who also wore number 34, but at the same time, Walter Payton was leading the Chicago Bears to the, the Super Bowl. So in this third grade year, you got my brother who starts high school, who really introduces us to football. You got um, Bo Jackson, who's on his Heisman campaign right here in, in the state of Alabama. And then you got, my parents had this connection with Walter Payton. My parents are from Mississippi. And so if you don't live in Mississippi in my family, you live in Chicago. And so Chicago is where we would go to visit my, so like that's the kind of the hub of it. And that number 34 just meant so much. And so because of Bo, we were mad that Bo had to go to the NFL. But the year after Bo Jackson was a, a tailback by the name of Brent Fullwood. And Brent Fullwood is, was just as good as Bo, but he wasn't as big and strong. And so what basically happens is on Saturdays, I mean, I, I can't envision a Saturday growing up in the fall where it's cool and hearing CBS sports is dun, 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 dun. And just remember, that's how I learned about colleges or seriously, like Penn State, Notre Dame. And I begin to learn geography based on conferences. So you got the ACC, the Atlanta, the, the Atlantic uh, Coast Conference. And so like these are the teams. And so this is where Maryland and Carolina and Clemson and then South Carolina was in it, but it came to the SEC. So my whole orientation to really kind of geographically understanding the South and what that meant versus, you know, the Midwest and the Big Ten or, you know, at the time, the Big East uh, versus the Southwestern Conference, which later becomes the Big 12, which becomes the big eight and then the big 12 and, and then you got the pack then you got the the, the pack the, whatever the pack whatever number pack they're on yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but the thing was is to watch our boys get out there and play and so it meant something to be from alabama when i was a so alabama won the national championship when i was in the 10th grade 1992 the football season was 92 this was the school year 92 93 they win a championship january 93 but i'm in the 10th grade and um that was my first year that I played under uh, a football coach, George Pugh, who was an All-American for Bear Bryant. And Pugh um, played tight end, was from Montgomery. And Pugh would get us access to, when we would play Central Tuscaloosa or we would play Tuscaloosa County, he would take us by the University of Alabama and we would get the royal treatment of an old ball player. 
And I can remember um, being in the 11th grade. We were getting ready to play Tuscaloosa County, and I was starting to be recruited by by Alabama football and Auburn football and other SEC football programs. And being down on the field and looking up at Bryant-Denny Stadium, they had just done this renovation, and they had Bear Bryant come on the screen, and he says, I ain't never been nothing but a winner. And I can just remember chills moving through me. And even though I was this big Auburn fan in the late 80s, early 90s, there was this one football player that played at Alabama that was my football idol. It was a guy named Lamont Russell. And Lamont Russell was an All-American tight end, but he was not big enough to be a real tight end. So he was like an H-back, which is the, the position that I actually played in college. And I can just remember that kind of, with that championship and that kind of lore and being that close to the coaches, I'm like, I want to be a part of this tradition. It was, Alabama won the championship with a, 1892-1992 was the 100-year period. And it was just a lot of fanfare. And I didn't drop my Auburn allegiance, but I looked at Alabama much closer. And I began to really study Alabama football. That night, I will never forget this as long as I live. Um, Coach Pugh called a Y screen, which was a play for me. And it was a delayed screen. And I remember blocking and turning around. And when it, when the ball was thrown to me, I couldn't see it because of lights. And it hit my helmet and it bounced off. And I remember being so embarrassed. I mean, like I wanted to crawl under a hole. Pops was looking at me like this. And later on, like by the end of that game, I had like 12 catches, 220 yards, four touchdowns. Well, you had to make up for bouncing the but, football off but your head. I was in Tuscaloosa, and I knew that Alabama was there watching. Right. That was the catalyst. And I look back at those days as my fondest time ever in my life playing football. That, that particular year, 1993, fall 1993, I remember that as my best year of football. And um, based on that year, I was legit Florida State. I had an opportunity to look at Florida State, LSU, uh, the Mississippi schools, Auburn, Alabama. And, uh, you know, I still like watch Auburn. I remember when Auburn beat LSU. and uh, You don't have to like Auburn just because you're sitting across no, the No, 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 no. I mean, but you got to understand. I mean, like War Eagle and all that. That's a major part of my upbringing. But I'm just saying, like, like Pat Nixon. I mean, like, I, that's what I'm saying is like, that was just as much as part. So mm -hmm. Alabama was kind of the latecomer in my right. years. So third through the 11th grade, I'm like this Auburn guy. And then we get this opportunity at Alabama and I'm just kind of like, this is it. So it's basically 11th and 12th grade is when Alabama and uh, going to this Alabama camp. And I remember they sent a coach, Jimmy Fuller to come scout me. And they were scouting me to play the same position that my football idol, Lamont Russell, who wore number 81 and I wore number 81. They, they did this. And I had a really good game. But my junior year, I did very well. But my senior year, they fired Coach Pugh. And another one of Bear Bryant's players came, Woodrow Lowe. And I would hear Pugh talk about the great Woodrow Lowe. That's how he did, the great Woodrow Lowe. And when you would look him up in the, the – then they didn't have the internet, so you would look in the, the uh, media guy. Lowe was a three-time All-American for Bear Bryant. Devout member of the Nation of Islam or a Muslim, mean as a rattlesnake, but you couldn't talk bad about Bear Bryant. And he comes in, he changes the offense, but Selma at the time had a discipline problem. And so he comes in and he like cleans house. And so this guy, I remember my senior year in high school having a having heat exhaustion, having to spend a night in the hospital. And my parents were divorcing that year. 
And so my senior year of high school, um, there were so many other things going on that I'd actually felt like I was a fluke. I, I felt like I failed myself. But the truth of the matter is they changed the offense. My parents had divorced. And so um, by the end of my senior year, I didn't have the numbers that I had my junior year. But I was still hoping to get with Alabama. And it was that year that Alabama, I, I verbally committed to play with them. I would have been in like a late scholarship, like a 23rd scholarship. And Alabama was put on probation behind Antonio Langham and all the Gene Jokes and all that. And Alabama lost 10 scholarships that year. So I didn't have an opportunity to play college ball at Alabama. But my former high school coach, George Pugh, had become the receivers coach at Alabama Birmingham. He recruited me and brought me there. And um, I love UAB. Yeah, I, it, and I was in the first recruited class, and it, it wasn't, I mean, like, you knew it wasn't Auburn and Alabama. You knew it wasn't that, but it was an opportunity. And at the time, I wanted to be a medical doctor. But this is the thing, this is the one thing that I noticed that made me start looking at college football strangely. My freshman year was 1995 when the Million Man March took place. And so we had an off week and my older brother had gone to Howard, so he was still in college. So I finagled my way to get up to Howard, to get up to Washington DC to go to the Million Man March, partially to be with my brother, but I was conscious, I believed in the cause. And um, I got in the doghouse behind that. Like, oh, you decided to go up here to Washington, D.C. for all that. But you're supposed to be with your guys. I'm like, well, Coach, we had, a, we had an off weekend. So that, that was the first thing. And then the second thing that I noticed is that a lot of the ball, ball players that I came in with, particularly black ball players, couldn't read. I noticed that they struggled academically. And I noticed that the coaches held football over their heads. But the coaches weren't able to hold football over my head like that. So because they were beholden to these coaches, particularly these white coaches, and I wasn't, I was just kind of like, they can miss me with that. Like, I don't, if I didn't play this game, I would be okay. But my senior year in college, I was given the opportunity to kind of push to redshirt. And I told the coaches that I wasn't gonna redshirt. And they were like, why not, it's for the team. And I said, coach, I'm not going to the NFL. They said, well, you, you got all the attributes. I said, but I don't, I'm not, I'm over this. Yeah, you got other things to do. I got other things to do. I said, I'm over this. And uh, I later on got an opportunity to kind of work out for some scouts. And I heard that the knock on me was that I was too easily distracted. And what that meant is I went to college, graduated from college four years with two degrees. I pledged Omega Sci-Fi. I participated in the Black Student Awareness Committee. I lived life as a student. And where I am today in my life, that student life was more important. It's been more important to my development than that football life. I struggle. I struggle with college football because oftentimes, as with the other players on the team, particularly players who needed football, and I didn't need football like that. Yeah, I was going to ask you that power dynamic. How do, is, as not being, of realizing that you had the wherewithal to step outside of it. Mm -hmm. How even then or now did you try to wrap your head around what was happening to these other guys? I struggled with it, but I, they, they wanted that to happen. But I was like, I was like, I'm not going to let that happen to me. And I remember my senior year telling my father, like, dad, I don't think I'm going to play football this year because 
They want me to red shirt. And my dad looked at me and he said, and this speaks volumes about him. And I'm, I'm thinking about him now because I know he's telling me to say this. I know he, he, he wants me to get this out. He told me, he says, I knew that when you realized what was going on, that you were going to do what you needed to do for you. And so um, I didn't have any bad blood for with UAB football. It's just that when that time was up, it was up. And I truly enjoyed being a student. Right. I guess, I mean, not so much even with UAB yeah. personally, but yeah. just with the sport. Yeah. Like you're part of it. And clearly you love it and it's such a huge yeah. part. But then when you start seeing, you grow up in your awareness and you start to become politically yeah. aware and you look around, how do you reconcile yourself uh, well, with those problems? So so my biggest issue with UAB football was, would be the fact that these coaches, or football in general, these coaches... it's the same everywhere, yeah, it's, right? it's the same everywhere. It's the same everywhere. These coaches would make decisions on who you were and what you were to do with them and not consult you about it. And you were supposed to blindly follow. And I wasn't raised that way. One of the things I realized is these coaches would make decisions, wouldn't consult you, but never thought about what you actually wanted out of it. And there, there are those that will make the statement and they will say, well, you know, like football is a modern form of slavery and whatever, whatnot. And though I do think that there is some control over certain things, it's not a modern form of slavery because I can walk away from it at any point in time and maintain who I am in the way in which I want to do so. And we got to be clear about that. And so I had to make a decision. And the one thing that in all of the universities that I've taught, when I've mentored young people, Ben Obamanu, who played at Auburn, grew up in Selma, uh, very close family friend, grew up with my youngest sister. Uh, I remember him playing in a football game in 2003 against Mississippi. And it was like an overtime game. And he threw in the ball and he dropped the ball in the end zone. And I saw him in Walmart in, in Auburn later on that night. And I said, Ben, I know it hurts you, but don't worry about it. I said, your value to me has nothing to do with what you do on a football field. So I've often tried to convey to young men playing sports, black, white, Latino, I'm interested in you. I'm not interested in what you do on the football team. Now, if you do well on the football team, I want to see that. I want to see you be successful. But that doesn't dictate who you are. And it leads me to the issues today on on, on why I struggle with football. Um, I struggle with the fact that, you know, young men are, they, they hold this scholarship and they talk about team and they say, you know, we're giving you a free ride. But to be honest with you, if a football player actually thought about it, you could take out a student loan and go to college for four years and invest some of that money and pay the money back and still have your knees and ankles when you are 23, 24. I have, I have no problems with knees and ankles and shoulders and all that kind of stuff, but I'm rare. I, I didn't have any concussions and all that kind of stuff. I'm rare. Um, it's not a free ride. You work many hours for that. Uh, many hours. And, and let More me tell you something. More hours than a lot of students who work themselves through college. I'm trying to tell you. And you're always required to be places. You, you have to limit where you can go because you have to be accessible for workouts. Um, you're constantly working out. You're also constantly trying to convince another guy to come to your school to take your position. Gosh, I mean, that's really interesting because I, I, I hear you. 
when it's reductive when people say it's a modern day form of slavery because that walking away is yeah. a very key thing we have to remember it, that slavery is slavery it was slavery it was debt it was shadow like property and all kind of stuff but it doesn't negate there are serious labor politics it, of of course there there are it's exploitative to the highest degree right but it it, it is but and and that's the power dynamic that's difficult and and I, I you know I hope I don't offend anyone in saying this, but it's difficult for me to support any system that believes in run nigger run, like if 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 you value my body and my production over my mind, that is a mental form of slavery. I get that, and that's what we see. I wrote this paper once in graduate school at the University of Alabama called The Limited Powers of Darkness. And what I was actually talking about is uh, were black athletes on campus and how they saw, I mean, how, how as long as they were catching touchdowns or playing on the football field and kept silent, like they were valued and people would give them money. But as soon as students that had something different, like you may be a Muslim, and September 11th is taking place and they want you to, they trying to Christianize you or they're playing jokes with you like they're leaving pork skins in your locker like that. It's like really xenophobic, you know what I'm saying? And as soon as a young man would say something about it, then he's deemed as a problem when he's trying to protect himself. Like I can't support anything that negates your own humanity. Well, this is the Kaepernick problem This right is the now. Kaepernick problem. And I, I don't support everything that Colin Kaepernick does. I mean like, but he should be playing. He should be playing. Oh, oh, no, 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 right? no, like, about it. I mean, it's not even at this point. Yes, it's about what. Yeah. Every, it's it is about everything Kaepernick has done, but he has his situation, whether he intended this or not, right. has revealed that there is a limit to this narrative of football as some great unifier. E- exactly, and 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 we have to we have to recognize that. sure you have i hate this commercial mm-hmm. with the blonde woman prancing around about how in the sec it just means more yeah like just as a reader of text i have no idea I, what that commercial i mean i know what that commercial is trying to say yeah but it drives me insane because it's it's just this idea of southern exceptionalism yeah. all over again you know and i was wondering we've talked a little bit about i am not saying i mean it is Football yeah. is big here. Yeah, it's huge. Um, it's a cult. It's a cult. It follow. has, I will freely admit that I am incredibly smug about SEC football over everything else. Uh, me too. Bow down. But, <laughs> like, the just sort of unquestioned Southern exceptionalism around football or what it means, it seems to just... It's one of those things when you're little and someone tells you, like, if it feels wrong, it probably is wrong. Every time I see that commercial, I'm just like, I don't know what that means. So how do we think about, like, okay. yes, football's yes. different in the South, but, like, that's a weird, that narrative yeah, has a weird it's a very, And it's a, let me just call it, it's a racialized balance. Exactly, yeah. And so, so, in the process of me going to do my PhD program at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and me being a Southerner, like a black Southerner who is 10 generations in black Southern. So I, my bloodline is as deep as anyone's bloodline here. And I identify in that regard with native 
American, you know, lineage and with some European lineage and with some African lineage. Um, there's this mis this this misnomer that the American South is this white man's land, and I actually see it as the opposite. When I would drive from Champaign, Illinois to Alabama, I knew that 15 minutes outside of Champaign in any direction were sundown towns, like towns where I was going to be in trouble had I been stopped by the police. Okay, I'm six foot two. I'm 220 pounds. I mean, I'm a big black dude. And so what I would do is I would drive from Champaign to Paducah and from Paducah to Nashville. And once I got to Nashville and hit I-65, I knew exactly where I was to where I knew that there was one town between Nashville and Birmingham that I need not stop and that would be Coleman, Alabama. I knew you were going to say that. that a, so with that being said, one of the things I began to grapple with in graduate school was this notion of the South which is why I created this idea of the Black New South, which is the Civil Rights Act of 1964 coming out of Birmingham and the Voting Rights Act of 1965 coming out of Selma and how that politically changes the American South in terms of black voting. That, that, that's what this is, right? But one of the things I begin to notice is that a lot of SEC football programs are steeped in Civil War and Old South Confederate memory. Oh, War Eagle. War Eagle, the the Louisiana Fighting Bengal Tigers. That's the that would be the the Louisiana Tiger Brigade, the Georgia Bulldogs, uh, the 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 Ole Miss Rebels. I I, I don't like to say the. I don't even like to say. Oh, I, I don't like to say Ole Miss either, uh, because of the connotations with it. Right. The Mississippi State Bulldogs, which we're talking about, British Bulldogs that speak to pure white white Anglo-Saxon Protestant kind of stuff. But then you start looking at things like the Kansas Jayhawks and the Michigan Wolverines. I mean, like you, so you get all of this stuff going on, right? And it's difficult for us to not to understand that, or the the Florida State Seminoles. Oh, I just, don't even get me started and, and, on Native and, and the Noble Savage and all this stuff. And so what happens is we're going to have this conversation around it's different in the South, but the schools would not integrate until the 1960s and 70s, depending on where you were. And there's a major conversation that when the University of Mississippi won the national championship in 1962, it wasn't even the best team in, in the state of Mississippi because Jackson State College had a had a squad that was out of this world. And so in talking about all of this, we have to be clear that we have to recognize that history of segregation and that history of how the University of Mississippi, how a war sparked in 1962 when um, James Meredith tried to integrate, or we have to look at, you know, the, the tarrying that took place at the University of Alabama with Arthurine Lucy. Uh, we have to look at the conversations in terms of integrating the Southeastern Conference schools, even with Hamilton Holmes and Charlene Hunter uh, here in, in, in the state of Georgia. What I'm saying is, is if we don't, it's not all good. And so when you put these black ball players on the field and you play Dixie and you fly that flag, and then you look at these guys like, well, you, we giving you a free opportunity. Well, hell, I could have played somewhere else. That's where it is. It, it troubles me because I realized that the football coaches of many of these institutions will never be inclusive of people that look like me. And that's a very difficult thing to support. I'm not trying to be rude here and I'm not trying to, I'm not, I'm not baiting anyone with race, but I, I am a black man that has had that that has been charged with the task of raising a black child. 
And my job is to try to keep them safe. And sometimes those environments are not safe because you have some wild person that will get out there and say something out of the way or or feel as if, you know, this is this is Ireland. It's, it's, a, it's a different kind of idea of nationalism that may not be inclusive of my idea of what America is. In a way, you talking makes me realize that SEC commercial I hate, when she when she says it just means more, it does mean more, but it doesn't mean what you it think. It doesn't mean it what means. it means. It doesn't mean what you think it means. I mean, it, exactly. it just means more because... And, and I it can, actually yeah. means a lot more. It, it means a lot but more. But that's not the commercial that's, you're trying yeah. to show. And... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you're not, right. It means yeah, more. It, it means more. It means more. Being a part of the Southeastern Conference... It means more than you might think. It means the heart of a home. The heart of campus. In the heart of town. In the heart of an entire state. Whatever it is, here, it just means more. How does it become more ethical? Like, what are the things that football could do can it can it become better than what it is? Like yeah. you know, I mean, it's a hard question because it's like so much of the sport, particularly in the South, is embedded in such bad racial politics yeah. and exploitative. Can you yeah? Can like, you like yeah. fix it, or is it just like oh god, I don't know? You'd have to start over at the beginning. Like you, what you, can it do? Well, well, so I think that a full and discur uh, a full screening of athletes would be useful um i think first and foremost I'm gonna t let me tell you what the major problem is it's these contracts it's these these gladi these sporting arena contracts so now stadiums are being built in and you know the big 10 network has a hundred million dollar contract and then you know the alabama network and then the auburn network and and then these coaches are being paid these astronomical salaries to where they're the highest paid person in the state in which they work and i mean so like Nick Saban is more important than the president of the university. Nick Saban is the most powerful person in the state of Alabama. Or, Meanwhile, kids in Lowndes County don't uh, toilet paper. Uh, uh, right. right? And, 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 yeah, and Lowndes County is the next county. Or I'm from the Alabama Black Belt and poverty is rampant and 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 health disparities are off the chain and, and voter ID laws and gerrymandering and, and the, the actual depoliticalization the de and, and immigration. Like all of these issues are going on. And everybody can, everybody's supposed to kind of bow down when this football team comes. And I'm, I'm here to say this: there, are, there, there may be some fans, rabid college fans, that may not even know that these college football teams are connected to the universities that they're cheering for. Like they, they have no investment in the university, but this team is our team. It's, it's the politics of it is crazy. But I think that this thing is going to have to tear itself down and be rebuilt. It's going to have to be rebuilt on the love of the game. It's going to have to be rebuilt on sportsmanship. It's going to have to be rebuilt on. Um, I think that there needs to be technology that is going to better protect, you know, heads. Um, I'm not trying to soften the sport, but to hear of someone like Tony Dorsett, who who I actually saw as an idol when I was growing up. And he says that if he'd have known what he knew now, he never played a game of football. That is amazing. I mean, this man is famous in households and is rich because he played football. And he's like, it's not worth it. That's eye-opening. Right. So 
I, I think if players were paid and they have the option of doing this and getting some kind of compensation, I think that it will level it. You will see a change in the attitude of the game. You will understand that there may be some athletes that may say, you know what? I can get out of here and, and, and sell pizza and make more money than this. And so I it's, it might just be better that I sell my pizzas at the football game when I could be the best player out there. But at the end of the day, I'm trying to prepare a life for my life after football. Right. It becomes about a choice, not yes. still I'm holding yes. what you've been told is your entire future That's over right. your head. That's right. And, and I will say this. Um, I do a lot of work with Georgia State's football program. I've done a lot of work with the University of Mississippi's football program. Did a lot of work with the University of Massachusetts football program. I did a lot of work with the University of Illinois football program. I worked for the University of Alabama's football program. I worked for Tuskegee's football program. And I can say this better now than I could when I was in my, my younger years. But I tell a lot of the college ball players, I say, do you know what's cooler than being a ball player on campus or a ball player on the yard? They be like, nah, nah, Doc. What's cooler than that? I said, being an old ball player. I'm 40. I got my knees. I got shoulders. I got my brain. I got, I'm healthy. I'm fit. I can chase my little boy. I can take my wife to dinner on Friday. I can enjoy watching football and feel nothing in terms of how I miss any of it. It's, it was purely a point in time in my life. But I'm lucky. I know guys who can't walk. 40 years old can't walk. Shoulders are torn up. Bodies are so brittle that they are addicted to opioids. So the, the question is, is that conversation around power and about the choice. And I just hope to God that we can do better. I love this game. It's done great things for me. But I'm so glad that it did not dictate my life. You asked a very important question. How can this thing become more, um, what was the term that you used? I said a more ethical. Sport. Ethical. How, that, that's a million dollar question. No. I, don't, I don't know the answer. Well, and I, to me, it's, uh, I mean, obviously, to come back to Kaepernick, this isn't a problem with the Southern Football League. It's a problem with the National Football League. That's right. That's Kaepernick right. is a West Coast guy who's at a West Coast team mm-hmm. who addresses a national problem right and then you see where the money and power is really is a couple of years ago I I was teaching at the University of Mississippi and this is when Cam was playing the what the one thing that I remember about that and this is going to speak to to something that we were talking about earlier is before the game we we had tickets from the University of Mississippi so before the game my wife and I were going to the restroom. And so I was like, hey, I'm going to the restroom. She was like, cool. So I walk in. And if you've ever been to a restroom in a stadium for men, it's like a trough. Like you walk in and it's like a trough on the wall. So everybody, 20 guys can stand up and easily take care of their business and nobody touch each other and all this kind of stuff. But when I walk out of the restroom, my wife is still in line. And it takes her about 30 minutes to, to use the restroom. So... When we get out, she's a little bit annoyed and she says, it's, it's clear that there were no women on the designing of this stadium. And it hits me in the head because if there were women, there would have been five times as many toilets with all of the accoutrements 
because of the involvement it takes for you know women to handle their business and whatever whatnot and i often tell my students that racism and sexism and class it all works the same way it's about power and who's where and so i'm saying all that to say that you have a significant population of southerners male men and women you know gay and straight black and white and everything in between that love this sport um and enjoy the sport but the sport has its problems thanks for tuning in this week again we'd like to thank our guest maurice hobson and we'd like to encourage you to go buy the book the legend of the black mecca politics and class in the making of modern atlanta you can find a link on our website about South is brought to you from the historic West End of Atlanta, Georgia. Kelly Vines and Ajoa Danto are my co-producers, and Lindsay Baker works with us on our social marketing. You can find us at aboutsouthpodcast.com, and you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our music is by Brian Horton. You can find his music at brianhorton.com. Next week, we're in Minnesota, thinking about regional dynamics and state fairs. And we also are eating a lot of cheese curds. Like, a lot of cheese curds. More, more cheese curds than you can imagine. So, stay tuned for that. And everyone's favorite, Lindsay Eckert, will be joining me. Until then, take care and let us know your thoughts on Southeastern football. So who's going who's gonna to win it all? Yeah, this I can year. call it right now. I mean, I don't want to watch another championship game between Alabama and Clemson. I'm tired. I've seen that game twice. You know. But, it, I mean, it may be them. I want to say Alabama. But Alabama always has an Achilles heel. I think Alabama. So, so, do I have to say who's going to win it all or can I give you the final four? You can give me the final four. Final four will be Alabama. Okay. Michigan. Ooh, I like it. I think Michigan is gonna. I think Michigan is gonna do some things this year. They did well over Florida. In Washington, it, it uh, representing the West Coast, it could be Washington. Um, Who's your ACC rep? That's what I'm looking at right now, and. Let me look at. Let me see. It won't be Virginia Tech. Let me let me go through. So Clemson. Let's see Clemson. See, I think Florida State's going to get Clemson. I think Florida State's a damn good football team. Yeah, I think so too. I think that they're going to play Clemson and they're going to beat them. I think that it's going to be a new day. I think there's going to be a new day for Florida State. It's going to have that blemish of Alabama, but you lose early. You Florida lose State early might to the be number one team. It's not yeah. that. It's not season ending. Because Alabama may lose a game this season too. I they mean, will. like you know, and they. And it could be early or late. It could. It won't be a Mississippi, but it could be an LSU, just randomly. Yeah. It could be a, an Auburn. <laughs>